So, Ian, on today's episode, I think first, yes. and, uh, first and foremost, you have some personal news that you want to share. I do. Second, uh, but what, uh, hold on, table of contents. <laughs> Secondly, I think we need to talk about how long Easter is. Is it 40 days or 50 days? Okay. And finally, we need to discuss and solve all the problems related to liturgy and music and the coronavirus. Okay. Do you think we can do it? So on Monday of this week, uh, it was announced that Lauren and I, my wife and I, uh, are taking two new positions, uh, which is certainly sort of unexpected all around. Uh, Lauren has been asked to serve and has accepted a call to serve as the next canon to the ordinary for the Diocese of Georgia. And I have accepted a call to serve as the next rector of St. Francis of the Islands in Savannah, Georgia. Well, congrats, congratulations to you both. That's some, uh, that's some big news. It is, it is. Uh, and I'm, I'm, it's, it's bittersweet in a lot of different ways. You know, we're very, very excited. Um, Savannah is, is where Lauren went to high school. It's where her mom lives. Uh, it's near where my entire family lives to some degree or another. Um, a day's drive is the furthest my family lives from there. And then, um, it's, uh, it's, it's just sort of the opportunity of a lifetime for her. You know, it's, it's the type of thing that you just can't pass up. And she gets to work with, uh, Bishop elect Frank Logue, who is a, um, phenomenal priest. And I think will make a phenomenal bishop, uh, he was the preacher at my diaconate ordination. He was the preacher at Lauren's priestly ordination. And he was the canon to the ordinary when I was in the Diocese of Georgia. And that's the diocese that I was sent to um, seminary through. And the diocese that Lauren was sent to seminary through. So Yeah, so, in a, lot so of, in a lot of ways it feels like a, a homecoming, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really, it really, really does. Um, especially because, you know, that's the, that's the diocese that Lauren grew up in, really. That's where she, she was involved in youth programs there. It's the diocese that I became, really became an Episcopalian in. I was actually um, confirmed in the Diocese of Upper South Carolina, but... Um, ended up in the diocese of georgia pretty quickly so it's 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 the the church i had really the the longest experience with in a lot of ways that's all that's all really that's all really neat how that's come together for you both i mean i think that that's really exciting at the same time i can imagine you know kind of what you're feeling in jefferson city because on the outside looking in it seems like that has been just a super fit for you and for them. It's been fantastic. Um, and, and coming here, we certainly did not expect to be leaving in two years and, and expected that even less as the days have gone by because of how wonderful and supportive and warm and welcoming everyone here at Grace Jeff City has been. So that's the, I mean, that's the bittersweet part of it is, is even as excited as we are, even knowing that this opportunity is not the type of thing that we could pass up at all uh, for our family, it's just really, really difficult to leave behind such a wonderful congregation, and especially so quickly. You know, I mean, if I, if this were five years down the road, I think it would be a lot less shocking. 
if it weren't in the middle of a pandemic, I think it would be a lot less shocking. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a very real part of this, too. I mean, yeah. what you're probably already considering, you know, what implications that has for your for your goodbye at Je- in Jeff City. Um, I mean, for instance, I'm already uh, plotting a, a, a Zoom party for you uh, <laughs> before you leave, since I imagine we probably won't get together in person. Um, and then, you know, you're moving and also, of course, your arrival in um, in Georgia. And and, yeah. spe- and speaking of which, I mean, we're recording this on the eve of the Ascension 2020. And I believe uh, Bishop-elect Logue in Georgia is, is going to be ordained very, very soon, if he has not already been ordained. I believe the date is the 30th. So it's, um, a, it's about 10 days from now. Roughly, give yeah. or take. Give or take, one or two. <laughs> So, well, yeah, congratulations all around. It's an exciting, ex- exciting thing for the Diocese of Georgia, and um, and for your family. And I, I know the people of Jeff uh, Jeff City. Once they are able to summon up the, the goodwill to say goodbye, we'll be we'll be really pleased for you too. They, and they have been honestly, mm-hmm. which which doesn't certainly doesn't make it any easier, really. <laughs> um, but is just evidence of how how fantastic they all are in, in that. Even though everyone's sad to see me go, everyone has said, at least everyone that's that's talked to me has said that how excited they are for for Lauren and I and for our family to be so close to family and and for her to be in in the position that she's going to be in and right. and know what what a great job she's going to do there. So it's they've they've just been amazing. Um, even even sort of dropping this bomb on them. Uh, that's great. Yeah. yeah, but I know one of the things that must make that harder is is some people in your parish surely have seen you in person, presumably for the last time already. It's it's certainly possible. Um, you know, we're, we've been we've been really really lucky here in Cole County. We've had fifty four total cases, um, and none of those are still active, which is not a guarantee of anything moving forward. But um, but we we have been sort of remarkably spared in some ways from the worst of of COVID-19 and so there's a there's a chance um if that stays that that way that we'll be able to do you know socially distanced gatherings of some sort um but it you know it just it a lot depends on what happens between now and then right well and I know that we'll get into more coronavirus stuff later in this episode but um in our diocese, unless anything changes, you know, about 10 days from now is when we're looking at the diocesan prohibitions on entering churches ending. So at, at that time, it would become permissible to do kind of socially distanced things sort of in and around our church buildings. Is that, is that on your radar at Grace Church? It is, and it, but it's still something that we're talking about. You know, what does that look like? How do we do that in a way that doesn't put anyone at unnecessary risk? What are the things, you know, the activities and and elements of our of our communal life that we probably need to alter drastically or forego um, once we're able to be together again? So it's it, it, it it's not a settled issue. It's something that we're still thinking about. But uh, but yeah, it's 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 very much a live issue. Right. Cool. Well, congratulations again. And um, one of the things I'm most happy about is I can use the uh, Georgia on my mind theme music again uh, (laughs) in in our podcast. So let's bring that up now.
So someone I uh, follow on Twitter, uh, Father Keith V. Do I know his last name? He doesn't use it on Twitter. Um, liturgical hot take. The BCP is wrong. The Paschal candle gets extinguished after the reading of the gospel on Ascension. This is a ditch I will die in, <laughs> he says. Um, so I think there are two schools of thought about about the Paschal candle and, and when, when you sort of no longer light it. Mm-hmm. But this is a pretty specific action he's referring to. I, I, I've seen this practiced in the Lutheran church and the, and the, some ELCA Lutheran congregations that I've been a part of. Um, I don't think I've had the opportunity to see this practice in an Episcopal church. Um, that as he describes after the gospel on Ascension day, you immediately extinguish the, the Paschal candle during the service. So this is a very clear marker of sort of the end of Eastertide. I guess if you, if you recognize Eastertide as a commemoration of the resurrected Jesus's presence on the earth, then yes, Eastertide would end sort of liturgically at that moment. And I guess, you know, it does have a corollary to um, kind of the Easter moment and the Easter vigil, that that's something that also occurs right around the gospel, right? that's when the lights come on and the trumpets sound and that's when the lights come on but that's not when the paschal it's, candle it's not when the paschal candles lit but I'm, I'm trying to draw a parallel there between sort of like something happening something happening with lights mid-liturgy you know what i mean I, uh-huh, yes uh-huh. i i am grasping so, at, i am grasping at straws there but um you might as well reach for tenebrae then <laughs> mm-hmm. but but i here's this kind of got me digging a little bit um I mean, I think the implication here is that historically Eastertide was a 40 day season only and that the octave, the octave of Ascension was something different. And then there was like a, a few, uh, like three days that we didn't talk about. And then there was Pentecost. Um, so what, what's your, what's your understanding of how this all works together? So this is, I mean, it's a really good question. Um, And as far as the history goes, this is one area of our liturgical calendar that I'm not well versed in. Um, And, and to some degree don't have a, don't have real, real strong feelings about, um, except the, 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 I'm, I'm very much a child of the 1979, right? So this is the prayer book that, that has always been my prayer book. Yeah, me too. Um, And so, I don't, I don't have the, um, I hesitate to say nostalgia because it can sound like such a negative word, but I don't have fond memories of a previous prayer book, um, that I'm importing or contrasting the 79 with. So that's all just to say, um, it's always, for me, it's always been in every, in every Episcopal parish I've been in, it's always been a 50 day season of Easter, um, and and so to me i don't i i I don't understand um trying to set ascension off as its own season within eastertide um or even as its own season right at the tail end of eastertide yeah and and i did pick up my uh commentary on the american prayer book by marion hatchett uh-huh. And there is a reference there to the restoration of the 50-day Easter season. And he says that's achieved by eliminating the octave of, of the ascension. Yeah, um, part, That's one of the ways that it's achieved. 
but so that makes me wonder. Yeah, and, and I I don't know fully the answer to that question. Um, maybe that's just one of those things where, um, uh, it it seems to be it just seems to be a matter of perspective in the calendar, doesn't it? Because, um, Ascension is a major feast, even the way our 1979 prayer book calendar wants it. Excuse me, a principal feast, the way our prayer book calendar wants it. Mm-hmm. And yet, we don't really have these these octaves, these sort of eight-day periods that we used to have in the calendar. Um, we don't have one for Pentecost. After Pentecost, right. you know, it, it immediately turns into ordinary time. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, everywhere I've been anyway, yeah. um, it's that's the season after Pentecost. And you've got Trinity Sunday, of course, but yeah, it's a, it's the season after Pentecost. Right. But that's the thing. I mean, you look at the calendar, at least by the 1979 on page 32, Easter season, Ascension Day, and the Sunday after Ascension Day, which is really just the seventh Sunday of Easter, colon, the Sunday after Ascension Day, is part of the Easter season. Yeah, and I mean, that, so, that makes it clear what it's supposed to be. Right? right, the seventh Sunday of Easter, you're still in the Easter season. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, I don't, I, I have mixed feelings about this, though, right? So, Ascension is clearly meant to be a central part of our faith, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it shows up in the creeds, so it's not something, it's a principal feast, it's not something that we want to do without, right? Mm-hmm. And yet... Does it does it make sense to set it off as its own season? Um, I just I, I don't I just don't know. I mean, we do that we we do that with Christmas. We have a twelve day season, and mm-hmm. honestly, if you if you took Ascension Day to the day of Pentecost, that would be nearly twelve days, wouldn't it? Well, but that's Christmas, right? Like that's one of the two central feasts of the church. Yeah, so you're saying central, and see if you're if you're really um, a fan of the 1979. I'm not sure you can say that. Why not? Well, because I think the 79 puts all seven principal feasts on equal footing. Well, it doesn't. More or less. It starts by saying church year consists of two cycles of feasts and holy days. One is dependent upon the movable date of the Sunday of the Resurrection or Easter Day. The other upon the fixed date of December 25th, the Feast of Our Lord's Nativity or Christmas Day. I guess you make a good point that the, that the dates are technically organized around those two feasts. So yeah. I guess the calendar does point to their importance. I mean, I, I, that's the way I read it. Um, and that's the way, that's the way I understand our, our common life together. I'm, I'm willing to be convinced otherwise, but I, I haven't been yet. (laughs) I don't know. So maybe my predilection is to overstate the case to, to try to, to try to impress upon people the importance of the Feast of the Ascension is to say, is to say it's as important as Easter. Is it as important as Easter? Is the Ascension as important as Easter? Mm Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't, <laughs> you're putting me in the position of saying, I don't think so, but, <laughs> but not because, not because I think it's at all unimportant. Okay. You know? Okay. Like the epiphany is, is crucially important, but is it as important as Christmas? Let me try to dig you out of the hole that I also dug for you. Um, <laughs> by, by naming these all principal feasts, isn't that, isn't that the point of the, of what the prayer book is doing? Is saying these are all crucially important to Christian worship and doctrine. 
Sure, but I don't. I, but I also think. I mean, there's a clear hierarchy throughout, right? And and there's some clear sort of horse trading going on with how we rank relative feasts. Um, in that we have after principal feasts, we have major feasts, but some of those are important enough to take precedence of a Sunday, right? Mm-hmm. So clearly, they're somehow slightly more important than the other major feasts, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that we have seven principal feasts, absolutely. But I think that we have two principal feasts uh, that are maybe slightly more important. Like we have two dominical sacraments and and seven total sacraments, maybe. I don't know. I guess that's all fair. All right. So I just I thumbed open the 1928 prayer book. Uh huh. By which I mean I opened it. Uh, I opened it in my browser. Uh-huh. And that does have a season of Ascension Tide that, yeah. that includes Ascension Day and then something called Sunday after Ascension Day. So the, the word Easter is not attached to that Sunday. Yeah. And then um, the next season listed in the 28 prayer book is Whitsuntide. Mm-hmm. So you have Pentecost Sunday, still called Whitsunday, I guess, in the first printings of that book. And then you have two weekdays. I think this is interesting. You have Monday in Whitsun Week and Tuesday in Whitsun Week. Mm-hmm. You have collects for those two days, um, yeah. but not, not a full octave observed. I think they might have done the same, actually, in the 28 prayer book for Easter Week, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, you're right. Easter, Easter Week is the same. It gives you Monday and Tuesday. And these are funny, these little, these little changes to the calendar, because the, any kind of weekday observance... In, in Pentecost has been dropped from our current prayer book, but the Easter weekday observance has been fleshed out. We have, we have stuff for every weekday. Yeah. Hmm. Cool times. Fascinating. Yeah. All right. So I guess bottom line, as far as the 79 goes, if you want to follow the letter of the book, mm-hmm. um, the rubric for the candle actually appears on page 287 of the Easter vigil. And it just, I was, I was just looking for that earlier. Yeah. It just reads, It is customary that the Paschal candle burn at all services from Easter Day through the day of Pentecost. Yeah. So that's the 79 book's intention. Um, but we, yeah, we recognize and affirm that there is another strand of the tradition out there. So, uh, yeah. so it, it takes all kinds. Yeah. I do I like I do wonder because we, I, I'm much less averse I think to an epiphany season than I am to an ascension season mm-hmm. and I don't know I don't know why that is probably because it's not because epiphany doesn't cut into what I consider the Christmas season right mm-hmm. like if there were an ascension season or or a proper Pentecost season not just a season after Pentecost um I feel like I would have much less of an issue with that than trying to trim the great 50 days to 40. Interesting. Well, and I, I guess for me, that numbering has always been important that you have, uh, 50 days of Easter, which is decidedly longer than Lent. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's kind of interesting to think about, well, if you consider the Easter season to be only through Ascension day, then you have, seasons that are exactly matched in length. So I'm not sure what that says either. 
Yeah, and 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 what does it say to extinguish the Paschal candle when Christ ascends? Right, like so, Christ ascends and sits at the right hand of the fa- of God the Father, uh, and yet we're somehow s- enacting symbolically that that the light of the resurrection has gone out. Well, I mean, what does it mean symbolically? Because the light of the resurrection hasn't gone out on Trinity Sunday either. It's right. just that's the first Sunday that you're not going to see it lit, according yeah. according to the seventy nine rubrics. Yeah, yeah. I, I, no, but but we also don't extinguish it in full view of the people and say, "Oh, true, oh, that's it." Yeah, that is a very deliberate um, symbol. It's 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 yeah. Trying to de- it's one thing. I think it's one thing to have it there one Sunday and come back the next Sunday and it's Trinity Sunday and oh by the way the candle's gone. Mm-hmm. It's it's a whole different thing to have someone snuff it out in mid-service. Right. Right? Right. I did have a thought around this about baptism, and I wondered if that was I wonder if that was in part the connection with the Paschal candle because let's assume that you did extinguish it uh on Ascension Day and mm-hmm. then I guess it would be out for the 7th Sunday of Easter. But then if you had a baptism on Pentecost it'd be lit anyway. Right. Um, so I wondered if that was in part the rationale of this book for extending Eastertide proper, uh, all the way through, all the way through Pentecost. I don't know. And I, I didn't spend enough time with Hatchet to see if that, if anything like that was in there. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting thought. So, for only the second time, we are about to observe a principal feast of the church in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, I feel a little bit funny reaching for silver linings on any of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things I do think is sort of um, just of a weekday, people have more interaction with their churches than they typically do. Um, in or I did during a non-pandemic time. Right. And so I sort of suspect that throughout the Episcopal Church tomorrow, people are going to be slightly more aware of the Feast of the Ascension. Yeah, I think that that's true. Um, I, 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 I'm embarrassed to admit this, but Ascension has snuck up on me um, because m- a lot of my energy has been devoted to Pentecost, um, which I, which I have been trying to observe in it, in it, um, fitting fashion and, and, uh, Ascension. We're not actually doing a special service for Ascension. We're having morning prayer as is our custom or has, has been our custom on Thursday mornings. Um, so we'll be observing it in, in, at least marking it. Um, but certainly not to the degree that you would expect of a principal feast. And part of that is just because, um, I don't, I, I don't know that I had, or the, that the congregation has had the energy to put into 
another big midweek production the way that we uh, uh, or liturgical production or or video production um the way that we normally would uh if if this were you know ideal circumstances yeah so in ideal circumstances would you have had a midweek service absolutely okay yeah yeah Yeah. um that's one of the things that i've that i've always been sort of adamant about is (laughs) even if there are three people there even if there's one person there i'm gonna have services on the on the principal feast of the church um but this year it's just it's it's been different because because i've just been so focused on other things yeah but like you say i mean there is this increased attention to the daily office just every day um via various online platforms so i mean i think that that that, you know there is already this uh this infrastructure of daily prayer throughout the church that maybe didn't exist um a few months ago so so i think that will to some degree uh help with uh the observance of this feast day tomorrow yeah i mean but it's still you know the 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 what you generally want to do is make sure that the principal the principal feasts are feel like principal feasts right Mm -hmm. um and so you want them to not be just business as usual and tomorrow for us at least will be i see um well, I think I think you're forgiven in light of, <laughs> in light, <laughs> well, of in light of everything, um, yeah. but uh, but you bring up a very real challenge, which is you know, um, the feasts come come fast and furious at this point in the year, because uh, we're not actually all that far away from Easter. Um, we've got we've got a feast on a Thursday. We've got a, a quote unquote normal Sunday following, and then Pentecost and Trinity back to back. So yeah, it is hard to sort of make things pop out of the calendar. Um, yeah. the way, the way that sort of the more, the more, uh, the more principal feasts too. do we have an easy way to, uh, do we call them principal principal feasts, Christmas and Easter? What, what, what did you call them? <laughs> What'd you, central, central principal feasts. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Well, that's right. It's going to be our own podcast nomenclature. Right. Right. <laughs> I, I think Ascension is really, really important. Um, and, and, unfortunately is one of those holidays that we really don't i i don't think we meaning really most christians today spend a great deal of time thinking about ascension and what it means for us theologically right mm-hmm. um but it's but it's a pretty big deal and it's pretty vitally important um that that the resurrected christ ascended into heaven um so I just, I, I wish that there were, I wish that we were better and I wish that I were better um, about emphasizing its importance so that we could really sort of live it out um, because I think that would only help us. Well, and, and you and I have certainly talked about this feast on this podcast before and we've made note of the fact that it's been transferred off of a Thursday in, yeah. in like 99% of Roman Catholic dioceses uh, right. in the United States. Um, yeah. so that they are permitted to observe it on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I, I suspect that at, at some point, probably a similar shift will happen in, in the Episcopal Church as well. Um, but what, let's, let's shift to talking about worship more generally and sort of take stock of where we are. So I guess we've sort of passed the two-month mark of, of changes to um, 
changes to in-person worship. Um, that's, that's wild, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, nobody saw this coming and I initially assumed to be pretty short lived and that is not proving to be the case. Nope. Um, so there's a lot to, there's still a lot to consider and to some degree that feeling of, you know, learning new information every day that has slowed a little bit, but it still feels somewhat like that. Um, you and I are both in the position where we're, we're, we're needing to seriously consider, you know, going back in the church building and who goes back in the church building and how, and how many people go back in the church building and when, and all these kinds of questions. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's really interesting. So we, we should say that we're in a diocese where the decision was taken out of local clergy's hands pretty early on, relatively speaking. Um, or at least for a long period of time, relatively speaking. So instead of like two weeks, followed by two weeks, followed by a little bit more, right? We knew basically in April that we were not be we were in mid-April that we were not going to be worshiping until June at the earliest. Mm-hmm. Uh, worshiping in person, I should say, um, because that was the, that those were the the bishop's directions. Just a quick note from the editing booth to clarify this. In Missouri, the letter from the bishops uh, was dated March 19th. And this is the letter that asked congregations to fast from public worship until May 31st. So it's made it, I mean, it really has made it so that we don't have to pay as close attention minute by minute. Um, in the way that I think clergy who are having to sort of weigh it week by week have maybe had to do. Um, but you're right now that we're getting, now that June is fast approaching and we, we have the, the leeway if it, if it makes sense for our setting and, and for our congregations, we have the opportunity to resume in-person worship. Now we're having to sort of check the case numbers every single day, right? you know, right. and say, did they did they go down or did we see a spike or what what's happened because mm-hmm. it it's of vital importance so what what would that mean for you i mean is there a is there a capacity limit that's going to be enforced by your county or is it just about uh, is it just about the number of people that you can socially distance in your nave yeah it's i and it's more about that and even that the the restrictions um central missouri is is relatively conservative and so i think the officials here have been reticent to put hard restrictions on faith communities so there are recommendations um from the department of health here in cole county uh that that sort of say, here's, here's some things you should think about or consider, but there are not the sort of hard guidelines that there are for other places of business, hmm. which is just, it's just really interesting. Yeah. All right. And then just to shift gears yet again, cause there's, there's so much to consider here. Yeah. Uh, last time we were together, we kind of reflected on everything we were doing and I sort of want to just revisit that, that, conversation again mm-hmm. um because very recently someone um passed along the uh a pastoral letter r- written by uh bishop doyle of texas 
mm-hmm. and I'll put a link in the show notes. The letter is called A Reflection on the Eucharist During the Time of COVID-19. And this re- really did a good job for me of, of articulating a lot of things that I've sort of observed and felt, but I've had a hard time, you know, sort of describing or putting into words. Um, and and one of them was um, this this inescapable sense of uh, kind of nervous energy around needing to do something um, given what's given what we've lost. So this is on page 15 of this of this letter. Um, he names a behavior called reactance. And this word comes from a study um, from the National Library of Medicine. And I just want to read a little bit of this because it, it really helped describe, um, I think, a lot of a lot of tendencies that we've seen. Reactance is an unpleasant motivational arousal that emerges when people experience a threat to or loss of their free behaviors. It serves as a motivator to restore one's freedom. The amount of reactance depends on the importance of the threatened freedom and the perceived magnitude of the threat. And then he goes on to talk about, you know, social distancing. This kind of happened in stages for us, the the removal of the cup. Um, the removal of the Eucharist, the removal of, of in-person worship, and then all of this kind of happening in the light of Holy Week and Easter, there was a very clear sense of loss. And I think we've seen lots of different shades of reactance to it. Some people, I think, have adapted really well to making things alternative uh, on to be, to be fully online, um, other places have tried to drive drive by Eucharists, drive in Eucharists. He he talks about that in the le- in the letter. Um, we have seen arguments for lay presidency. I'm not sure that I've seen those within the Episcopal Church. I suspect they're going on. I know they're going on <laughs> all the time. <laughs> I suspect they're also going on during this pandemic. Um, and then we've also seen this 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 push for a virtual Eucharist. So there is the case in, is it the Diocese of Louisiana, that the bishop sort of in the same day both authorized uh, a virtual Eucharist and then had to walk it back um, after getting some guidance, some conversation from the presiding bishop. Um, so yeah, uh, and these all of these conversations are still very much alive and active, and I don't think anyone's going to be satisfied for a long time. I think that's true. I think, uh, you know, we're, we're going through something that none of us have ever gone through. Um, and so we're, we're sort of forced to, to, uh, figure it out basically, um, forced to, to sort of answer the questions about, um, what do we, what do we do when, when we can't do what it is we normally do, you know? Right. Um, and and one of the things that we normally do, um, this, I guess this gets at the question of like virtual versus real. Um, uh, there's there's a good bit in the letter here about um, the a, a sense of gathering in one place. I mean, this is really key to our liturgical identity. That and and actually, you know, the architecture and the building itself. Um, I think uh, as a musician, <laughs> I really feel that given that my primary instrument is in fact locked in the church right now and I'm not allowed to go play it. Um, yeah. 
but you know more than that the acoustic of that room the the way that that room responds when it's full of singers the way that that room sounds when it's full of singers um, all of these kinds of things that tie me and our congregation to that place but but that that is in fact um, biblical and theological that that worshiping together in one place um, and and the more I consider that you know the more that this idea of of a virtual gathering really of any type that is a that is a distinct element of loss um, even if you gather chronologically in time you are still separated yeah. and uh, it, it's made very very clear the first minute that you experience a delay in the in the zoom call or the first minute you try to say something together or heaven forbid sing something together which just utterly does not work over zoom um yeah. we're we're yeah. not together and uh and worship uh there's no substitute for that <laughs> right now that we know of and worship really only works when we're physically together in a certain way yeah i mean i i, I do i want to draw the distinction between worship more generally and sacramental worship and i think that um i do think that worship works when we're not gathered to some degree to at s- least to some degree but i think it, it is compromised and i i guess i should i should say you know yeah liturgical worship is certainly made very challenging uh, yeah. when, when we are driven from our common space. Yeah, and I think sacramental worship is made impossible. And 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 um, I don't I don't I, you know I don't claim to um, fully understand the opposite view. I don't um, I'm not a luddite, and I don't hate technology, but at the same time. Um, I just, I, 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 you know, when, when we say, um, the words of institution at every Eucharist, we say, um, do this in remembrance of me, Christ's words of institution, or do this to remember me, to, 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 uh, regather my body, um, that this is a part of what we're doing when we celebrate the Eucharist. And we're not, we can't do that in the same way. We aren't united. We aren't gathered when we're online together in the same way. It's not a. It's not. It's not an extension of the incarnation in the same way that gathering together and breaking bread together is. And I don't understand the view that says, "Yep, it's just as good." Um, it's it's good enough for now, um, and it's good enough to to to. Um, you know, gathering online is good enough to, to suffice in times where we can't be together for the safety of our most vulnerable members. But people who say this is the same as that, I, I just, I don't understand it. I don't. Yeah. No, it's definitely not the same. And I don't think, um, I mean, I certainly don't feel any desire to try to, to try to make it the same, um, to try, to try to make it comparable. One of the one of the really th- interesting things that um, Bishop Doyle points to is some reflection by um, the Reverend Sam Wells and the Reverend Abigail Kocher. Um, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing her name. Um, they've written a piece, which again I'll link to separately in the show notes. Thoughts on virtual communion in a lockdown era. Their their approach to a virtual communion, I think, is a celebration of communion wherein no one receives. <laughs> and um, whether I'll read a little bit of this too. They write, 
what is required of us is to keep the feast. It may feel a terrible absence to offer the Eucharistic prayer without the consumption of elements. In this season, keeping the feast is more akin to keeping a fast, not a fast we have chosen. That's really interesting. I, I had I had encountered that idea before, but it was it was interesting to to read it read it articulated in this way. I uh, on Tuesday night I taught um, actually the past two Tuesday nights I uh, led a workshop for UTO the United Thank Offering on grace and gratitude in our liturgical life. And this past Tuesday I talked about how actually so the first Tuesday I talked about how. In order to really enjoy something, which is a key part of being grateful, right? You have to really enjoy something in order to be grateful for it. But the um, the the three best ways to really enjoy something are to a anticipate it, b really savor it when you have it, and then c have times where you go you you go without it. Um, and anyone who's been through drug education will tell you you know if you if you engage in something that's pleasurable often enough it becomes less less pleasurable over time we know that um that's what happens with with sort of drug resistance and and um your body building up a tolerance but the same principles apply even to good things that aren't addictive even to good things that we don't necessarily think of as bad if you eat chocolate every single day eventually your brain derives less pleasure from the chocolate and the only way to get that amount of pleasure back is to actually go without it for a while um and this isn't a fast that we've chosen and i think it's important to name that and yet I think there's a a, a degree to which the Eucharist for most of us had just become what we do on Sundays and had lost the the importance of truly communing with God and with each other, of really truly remembering Christ and gathering together and receiving the body of Christ. And so the, the silver lining to me of this time, this fast that we haven't chosen, is that it's, it, it, it has the potential to really build our appreciation for that sacrament beyond what it was when this pandemic began, because we're going without it for a time and realizing how key, how central, how important it really is to our faith and our life in the faith. Yeah, that that is a really interesting aspect of this, because... That was sort of one of the arguments in favor of morning prayer. I think at a lot of places that where morning prayer perishes, that you know, if you if you do celebrate the Eucharist every week, then it becomes less special. But I'm not sure. You know, I'm not sure that um, Eucharist was really held in very high esteem in morning prayer parishes where it was only celebrated once a month. Right. I mean, this is the thing. Like. It, it, yeah, it's it's entirely possible not to appreciate the Eucharist on either end of the spectrum. And yet, um, if it is as important as we say, and I think it is, you know, it's what the church has historically done whenever it's gotten together, is celebrate the Eucharist. Was was any command so obeyed? Is that what is that what Dick says? Yeah, yeah. Um, do this. Yeah. Do this in remembrance of uh, in remembrance of me. Right. And uh, <laughs> much as I don't like Dick's, that is a very good quote. <laughs> That's from The Shape of the Liturgy by yeah. Tom Gregory Dix. 
I mean, you can. It's entirely possible to 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 lose the specialness of the Eucharist in in any particular setting, um, and I think we were right to restore its centrality, but. That's so unquestioned now that I think that there are plenty of people for whom uh, it, it, Eucharist is just what we do when we get together, and it's meant to be. Right. And yet, uh, and yet, we should yearn for it in a way that we don't always, if we're honest with ourselves. Interesting. Yeah, because that is a paradox, isn't it? It we should be regular about it, and yet we should also yearn for it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I guess we are learning. We are learning over time how much we, how much we do yearn for it, but the other aspect of that is sort of being entitled to it, right? Yeah. Because um, it's it's not it's not something we are, we should assume we always have access to. I mean, right. that's been made clear. And it's and it's and and there have been times throughout history where we haven't had access to it, uh, or where our ancestors haven't had access to it. Right. And that's where we that's where these these sort of um, anomalies come from you know um that's where that's where morning prayer became becoming the rule really comes from is probably from a a lack of clergy to go around right you know and so herein lies the whole the whole um issue with sort of hyper innovating around the sacrament you know you can't you can't replace it just because you feel like you should have it yeah, and, and speaking of you know appreciating, I mean, um, the 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 ways in which we we are going to need to make music um, in the coming weeks and months. Th- that's not entirely clear to me, but um, you know, I'm sort of living into my own reactance around this. <laughs> I'm I'm. I'm holding all, all these things very loosely and I'm trying different things um, just to kind of see what uh, what might be, what I might want to return to. And I don't know, I don't really have any, I don't really have any systematic thoughts around what music making is going to be or needs to be. Um, I'm sort of more interested with how we can be together as a choir in spite of our being unable to sing, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, because there are some things that we can do, but I think um, p- people in our choir are variously limited through time and technology. And you know, do you have a quiet space to record where you won't bother your neighbors or right. or wake up your children? So I mean, yeah, this it, it's just sort of not what we need to be doing right now is bending over backwards to try to generate new music in in wildly creative ways. Yeah. Um, so, f- uh, just really quickly, in in tomorrow's service, I uh, took it upon myself to record the bird three part mass. I'm doing the Gloria and the Sanctus all by myself, um, mm-hmm. with uh, with an app that I that I found. So, what app is it? It's called Acapella. Oh right, yeah. And if you if you want to use it in kind of any any serious way, you do have to go a little bit beyond the free trial and actually pony up for the for the app itself so yeah thanks for joining us today for this episode of all things right and musical if you enjoyed this episode about ian's personal news ascension being 40 or 50 days and ongoing issues related to liturgy and music in uh, this time of the coronavirus 
We hope you'll tell us about it. You can find us on the web at writeandmusical.org. That's spelled R-I-T-E and musical.org. You can follow us on Twitter, and you can always send us an email at writeandmusical at gmail.com. A special thanks to our generous patrons who support this show on Patreon. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Have we used that before? I, I, yes, we have because I went through the trouble of making it. And uh, I remember that I, I used to try to keep track of when I used the, the theme music. Right. Uh, but I gave up on that because it's just, it's just one more thing to try to keep track of. So right, right. It, it has been used at some point and I, I don't remember which episode. I can't believe that you, you have foregone an opportunity for a good spreadsheet. <laughs> I'm 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 uh, maxed out on the spreadsheets as as luck would have that's it. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah.